Okay, recording, go. G'day and welcome to the bar. My name is Nick and I'm joined today by Georgia, as always. Georgia, how are you? Good, thanks, Nick. Back at it again. Back at it again. Lovely to be here. Uh, You're looking pretty sweaty today. Where have you been? Just came off another basketball win, another Mm -hmm. game, another win for the uh, yellow team. team. UTS LSS Team 3. There's three Mm -hmm. of them. We're number one on the table. Um, Yeah, that's why I'm sweaty. (laughs) How are you, Georgia? I'm good. Studying and not doing very much, but we'd better start off with what are our favourites of the week. Other than another episode for self-promotion and your basketball career, what's going on? Today, what's been going on with me? What is my favourite of the week? Mm -hmm. Kindle. Okay. A Kindle. Have I said this yet? We've talked about it personally, but not on the pod. Good, good, good. Kindle. Guys, it's good. Folks, grab one. It's reignited my book reading. I mm-hmm. don't know. Like, I, as a kid, I was a massive reader. I, like, really made it a goal of mine a year or two ago to really make sure I stayed up to reading. But the best thing has been the Kindle. It's so easy to grab books, and I can have, like, four or five books at once because I'm a bit ADHD. I like to flip through books. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I want to read a book about finance. Sometimes I want to read a fiction book. Sometimes I want to read a book about the gym. Mm-hmm. Jumping through all of them. It's yep. great. Yep, all on one device. It's my, true. My only thing that, and I'm trying to get back into reading as well, mm. and been visiting my local library. That's really cool. But do you not miss the feeling of a physical book? No. Not I at all? I thought I would. If you asked me, but, so I got it for my birthday in March, mm-hmm. and if you asked me in February, do you want a Kindle? I probably actually would have said no. Mm-hmm. I would have said the same that everyone says, oh, I like the feeling of the pages. Relax. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I like it. I don't think you miss too much of the pages. And at the same time as well, it's not like you're reading a book on an iPad, mm-hmm. right? So you don't have, like, this really bright blue light screen in your eyes that's really hurtful. Like, it, it is. is a darker, non-backlit screen. Obviously, it doesn't really compare to paper, but it's a lot closer to paper. Mm. Like, you can read it late at night and you're not frying mm. your eyes. Mm. Can you still see it during the day, like the bright sun? You can. Yeah. You can. It's really good at that at... It has the ability to understand what light it's receiving and then change Mm. to kind of, you know, let you be able to read it. And the great thing is I can read it really late at night with all the lights off and I can turn the brightness all the way down and I can still read it but without frying my eyes. Yep, yep. Got to keep them up in good shape. Yeah. Law school, you're all about reading. (laughs) (laughs) I read everything but my textbook. Uh, Yeah, can you get them on the Kindle? You can, probably. I would encourage you to actually do some work. (laughs) You know what? That's not actually not a bad idea. Yeah. And the best thing about the Kindle as well, actually, is that you can get PDFs on it. Oh. So I have a few books that I've obtained on my laptop in PDF form. But are you going to read a book on your laptop? No. You're going to put the I laptop on your chest on and, and click through the buttons? No. Mm-hmm. Not so, bad, not bad. Yeah. I, I actually would recommend it. But it does kill your library game. Going to the library is cool and good for the community. It's good to support the community anyway. So, like... 100%. Things like that that are in the community are only going to be funded if people are using it. For so, sure, for sure. Jeff Bezos does it. not need any more money and I'm filling his pockets, but your favourite. <laughs> my favourite of the week. Both a favourite and my least favourite thing well, of the week. Let me guess, a really, really tiny handbag. No. Okay. Although I really hate that. <laughs> <laughs> I really need a handbag that I can fit my phone and all my stuff in because I'm always carrying heaps of stuff around. Yeah, Georgia's phone. The case is not like a wallet, but she treats her case like a wallet and it's exploding. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's yes, falling yes, apart because yes, yes. you've got so, all your cards in there. Not one of those ones that has the flip thing. No. I used to just shove the cards in the back of the case. It's a normal and, case that you've 
you know, destroyed. I don't do that anymore. If I can have a second favourite of the week, <laughs> it's like Apple Pay and the Apple Wallet and all of this. Mm. I've finally discovered how to actually use it and use it all the time. Okay. Amazing. Mm. Amazing stuff. Yeah, it is. Cool. Anyway, um, my actual favourite of the week is denim jeans that are high-waisted mum jeans. Love them. Amazing. I don't like that low-rise jeans are coming back in. Not a fan. Let's get rid of this. Britney Spears type. Yeah, none of that. I'm never going to get into it. Mm. Anyway, so I'm, you know, I've gotten dressed this morning. I've got my mum jeans on. I'm really excited. I'm going to IP. Mm. Great time for class. Mm. Anyway, and I lean over to do my shoes up. And I pulled a plesis and I ripped my jeans no. all the way from my bum, like down the leg. Was this today? Today, this morning. And that's why I was late to class. Oh, before no. class. So it was as I was leaving the house. You're in a different pair of pants now. So I had to go home and put on a different pair of, you know, you're blue sh- denim mum jeans. You're still wearing bl- yeah, Same thing. blue denim mum jeans. But they were my favourite ones. Oh, no. And they're gone. You did a me. Yeah. Down to the knee is... is depressing isn't it it was pretty bad the and airflow like, it, on it, both. it feels embarrassing and i've had them for years yeah they ripped and then i was late to class that's so sad i have a pair of jeans that just been through so many alterations they've been tightened but when it was cool to have skinny jeans and then they've been loosened <laughs> and my girlfriend says you need to get rid of them and they just develop a new hole all the time i don't wear them that much but they're mm. like my really faded black jeans yeah. sometimes you just got to throw them in the bin yeah, well, or donate them. It's good that you keep reusing them, though. Yeah. But until the point where they get ripped. Yeah, they're so faded and they're so thin. <laughs> so wait, what's the favourite? So that... Jeans? Jeans. I just, I just love winter clothes. Okay. They're back. Okay. But it's also my least favourite thing of the week is that my favourite pair of jeans got ripped. Yeah. Can you buy the same model? I don't know. Surely. Surely. Everyone stay tuned <laughs> for the exciting second instalment. Does Georgia get the same cut of jeans? <laughs> Maybe to a more interesting topic. Today we'll be speaking to a very distinguished guest, Mr. Callan O'Neill. Callan was called to the bar in May 2012. Prior to this, Callan was employed as a senior associate with Clayton Utes and later at Watton and Carney. His practice principally focuses on the area of insurance law, commercial law, alternative dispute resolution, and some sports law. Uh, Callan is a tribunal member of the New South Wales Rugby Union Judiciary, so we'll be unpacking that today. And also he's a UTS alumni. So we're very excited to have Callan on today. Callan, welcome to the bar. Thanks for having me. Uh, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. I mean, apart from the fact that I'm recovering from a vicious loss, um, unfair as it was, I'm, you know, otherwise fine. <laughs> it's good to hear that you're fine. <laughs> we don't ever like to hear about a loss, but we get through them. No, it's part, get of the, part of the job, unfortunately. Mm. You know, when you look at the CLRs, all those people who thought they were going to go to the high court to win and half of them lost. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We are just talking about basketball earlier today. Whether it's the high court or the basketball court, it's never good to lose. No. Yeah. Um, someone has to. It's 50-50. That's right. That's we win right. some, we lose some. Yeah. Uh, Callum, we'll start with the question we ask everyone. If you could take one person to the bar, who would it be? Um, well, I've assumed you meant um, the bar and the pub because mm. no one would want to go to the bar otherwise. <laughs> um, look, there was a guy um, who I never met but who is known um, uh, quite affectionately along the bar. His name was Chris G. QC. Uh, he was an insurance um, barrister and lawyer by trade, but he must have been somewhat of a wit. And he invented 10 laws of litigation. Um, Two of them have been lost to time, so we don't know what they are. But the the other eight are the correct answer is always no. The correct answer is always no. (laughs) The correct answer is always no. Um, No case is not improved by a good verbal. 
Never smile in a jury trial. If you need to call the bank manager, settle. Under no circumstances, pass the water bottle. And the laugh is never re-examined. So if you go through a career at the New South Wales Bar, um, abiding by those laws of litigation, you tend to have more success than failure. Really? Um, <laughs> uh, and I can explain what they all are if you want, uh, the first three. Yeah. Um, it's really hard to ask people questions in examination in chief because you know you've got to ask an open question Mm. but ultimately the skill is to ask them an open question that they answer in as no so that you can move to the next one so that you're actually providing the dialogue you're controlling the dialogue Mm. um so that's that's where those three come from the fourth one is you always try and implicate people in a trial by using their own words the fifth one is never smile in a jury trial. You want to make sure that juries understand that you're very serious and there's a very serious obligation upon you and that you're not trying to charm them. The sixth one, if you need to call the bank manager, settle. Mm. If you need to call a bank manager in a banking case, you are in big trouble. Under no circumstances, pass a water bottle is give no one a free ride. So don't help your mm. opponents unless you have to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's the metaphorical water bottle. And then never re-examine is a known risk. If your witness gets obliterated in cross-examination, you have an opportunity to try and re-examine. Of course, the minute you try and re-examine, everyone knows that you think your client just got obliterated in the witness box. So it's a bad idea and it never works anyway because the witnesses always go AWOL and do something that you didn't expect them to be able to do. But they're the rules. Um, And he was apparently a really nice bloke. Um, So there you go. Chris Jay, QC. Very, very cool. Rules for the bar, rules to live by. Yeah. (laughs) True. Some of them, I think, would have a lot of impact in life. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe one day we'll get to use them at the bar. An actual bar, not a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, part of the reason why we have Callan on today is to talk about the bar and your experience, but also you started your legal life at UTS. First quick question, could you tell us a little bit about that time? Did you enjoy it? Um, Yeah, I mean, it's a long time ago now, but... um I can tell you, I still remember my first lecture, so legal practice and theory or legal Mm -hmm. practice and something. And there was this um, gorgeous French student in Mm -hmm. front of me. Um, and I spent the whole of the first lecture trying to send notes to her. (laughs) We used to write notes. Oh yeah. 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 Handwriting notes in French. To try and see if she would go on a date with nice. me. Nice. Uh, yeah, it failed terribly. Um, Did you know French, or you were you were actively learning to pass the note? Well, I knew enough. I had schoolboy French, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. but um, I'd stopped my schoolboy French because uh, at the time the French were bombing a place called Muroa Atoll with atomic weapons, and I was adamant that that was a bad thing, so I vetoed French. Now, on reflection, mm-hmm. that was probably the worst thing to do. Like the best thing would have been to learn French and then advocate to them in French as mm. to why it was that that was a bad decision. But, um, you know, year eight, Cal was a bit of a different person to... You know. <laughs> but you wrote him a letter. I wrote yeah. Jacques Chirac, was the president, wow. and I wrote him a letter, and it, my mum has it at home with, uh, <laughs> the, with the facsimile with recorded the from the... Yeah. yeah, yeah, so it went over by fax, mm. and then the French um, consulate in Paris sent a, a reply to say oh. that it had been received. Did you ever get a substantive reply? No, but I did write it in English, so I don't... <laughs> you tried your best. That's, yeah, that's crazy. It's not a bad advocacy rule, though. Like, you know, you have to communicate with people on their level. Mm. There's no point you getting someone who um, works in a coal mine and is down in, in the dark all day and, you know, talks to his mates about rugby league and reads the Daily Telegraph and, and those things 
and then getting into a highfalutin conversation with him about Foucault. It's just not a work. Mm-hmm. So you've got to be able to adapt the communication to speaking to him. And I guess I was trying to advocate to the French president in English. It's unsurprising. <laughs> I don't know where. Do you find that that comes into play in your work as a barrister? So being able to speak maybe in non-legalese or with your clients? Yeah, definitely. So um, my principal area of practice is, is as a common lawyer. So if you remember back to equity when they talk about the divide between the common law and equity, mm. uh, I was probably more in the common law style in terms of I do a lot more work where people are involved rather than paper. Mm-hmm. But um, definitely where people are involved, you need to communicate to them. Now, some of my clients on the, at the big end of town or the Commonwealth of Australia, others are, you know, Indigenous guys from Dubbo or people who have been, um, were victims of historical institutional sexual abuse and places like that. And they've had very bad starts and mm. they don't, really uh, need to listen to some barrister on Phillips Street pontificate to them about how bad their lives are. They mm. just want it to be communicated effectively and they want their day and their day to be heard. So, And, yeah. you know, any time you're in front of a jury, I mean, yeah. juries are just people. Mm. You know, very, you're normally um, pretty... Juries are pretty well composed and they'll compose a nice little cross-section of the community. It can't be a full cross-section, obviously. It's only 12 people or in a civil jury, it's four. So... But, you know, you'll speak to them, like, you know, on their level. They're not going to want you to speak it in Latin. Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not that I could, but... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I still wouldn't even be able to understand that either. No. No, definitely not. Um, but besides your uh, note-passing experience, um, your time at UTX? Yeah, it was great. I mean, I had a member a lot of it. I spent a lot of it in the bar. One of the guys in my bridal party was my best friend from in UTS. So, yeah, it was good great. It's good to know that there's hope as well for us who spend some time in the bar <laughs> when they should be studying. It's kind of yeah. important to be in the bar as well, isn't it? I mean, that's where you learn a little bit about yourself and a little bit about everybody else and how the world works. Yeah, we call it networking. (laughs) (laughs) It was still called that then, so... Yeah, Yeah, never know where the people at law school end up. People get into such diverse careers, so... Might need them. Might be a client one day. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Yeah, when when you need legal help, Les, call me. (laughs) Um, We did mention at the top about your movement, so you finished at UTS, and then you're at Clayton Utes, and then Watton and Carney, and then into uh, your call to bar. Can you um, explain to us kind of like your impetus for those movements? Like you really wanted to go into commercial law and then what kind of took you to the bar as well? So one step that's not known is that between university and Clayton Utes is a place called Hazlitt's, which was a legal stationer. Okay. I don't know if legal stationers still exist. They, they, they're they're like filing clerks and, and basically what used to happen was that when you bought a property you used to go to the Office of State Revenue Hmm. and exchange the documents and the checks would settle and everything would settle in person. Hmm. So the Office of State Revenue was full of law clerks. It was like the floor of um, the ASX back in the day. (laughs) And so you'd be yelling out the solicitor's name, trying to get people over. So that was my first job. And Hmm. it was just walking around Sydney doing property settlements and filing documents. So that was a good start because a very practical start into civil law. Uh, and then I was lucky enough that there was an inquiry or inquest on in respect of um, what was called the Medical Research Compensation Fund, which is a fund that was set up in order to allow James Hardy to leave Australia. So it was all about asbestos funding. I was working as a barman at the Anadar Hotel at the time, had long hair, hmm. stunk of cigarettes because he used to smoke it, used to smoke inside. Mm. And I rocked up to this interview and my interviewer was a, a lady called Professor Dr. Jocelyn Kellum. Wow. And she just said, well, like a barman 
who rocks up stinking like cigarettes but has this thesis which is this amazing thing he's the guy we want so that was it mm. so then i got a job as paralegal and then ultimately went through the grad program and, and uh, so i never summer clock i just got lucky uh, yeah. so it was a bit sort of just by accident and then that just evolved into i love clayton hits it was awesome uh, it was pre-gfc it was the golden years mm. you know you would work really hard so you would work from sort of you know eight till 11 12 o'clock at night but you got meals at the desk gym memberships free towels you know the bathroom was better than my crappy you know share house in <laughs> annandale it was awesome it was mm. just fantastic um, and so, yeah, I was Captain Clayton Yates, Captain Touch Team, you know, we had all these things. Then the GFC hit and the world changed in terms of employability for solicitors and whatever, and it became tougher. The ability to move to London stopped. We, lots of solicitors used to move back and forth to London, mm. and that was kind of what I wanted to do. That stopped. Insurance, which was what I was in, um, boomed um, because it's a counter-cyclical area. So when there's a downturn, it takes off just as it has during the COVID and then I was headhunted to Watton & Carney and I went from having sort of five nice big files at Clayton Yates to at one stage I think I had 180 files under management um, as a senior associate which was amazing Uh, and that's where you learn a lot about um, being able to make decisions quickly make an assessment about what a file is and do the legal analysis as quickly as you can because you know it's all about making sure that decisions moving on bang and also using a big team so there's a lot of entertaining that went on in insurance at that time so mm-hmm. it was it was a bit of a party it was really good <laughs> you know i always thought about the bar and sort of got to the time where i thought well you know what let's have a go but it's actually a two-year kind of process from thinking about having a go to to getting there mm-hmm. because you've got to find a room uh and then You've got to sit, then you had to sit the exams, there were three exams at that time, it's now one, broken up into two sessions on mm-hmm. one day, and then enrol in the practice course, so, you know, and go from my nice big sort of corporate lawyer's salary mm-hmm. to whatever I can kill and eat by myself. Yeah, and at crappy rates, like at the low rates in order to get the volume through, because you go back to not knowing anything. I mean, you know, the most I'd stood up in court was in a directions hearing or something, now I'm running a case. You know, within the first three days of the bar, I had run one application in front of the chief judge in equity where a guy had come to the floor and he had had a motorbike accident where his short-term memory was gone. And so in order to recreate his memory, he would write it down in this book. And so the book, though contained a lot of profanity about people. So, for example, if he met you, yeah. he goes, okay, and the only way he could remember whether you were good or bad was if he wrote lots of nice things, he would know that you were good. Mm-hmm. If he wrote lots of bad things, it would trigger, push the short-term memory maybe into medium or long, yeah. and then he'd know that you were not to be trusted. Mm-hmm. And so they'd made an application for his books to, for him to, to discover his books mm. and produce mm-hmm. them to court. And he said, I want to produce them. They're not, they're not books. It's not writing. They're not documents. Yeah. They're my brain. That's my brain. That's my memory. Yeah. You don't have to produce what's in your brain. Mm. You kind of have a point, except that the evidence act says that's that's a document it's a and it's yeah. a piece of paper. <laughs> and it's got, so that was really interesting. So that's day three. Yeah. And then day four, oh, I was down um, in district court running a two-day case about a tractor that had dug through an electrical cable. Yeah. Got down there and uh, I had a very... I had two very experienced barristers on the other side. There was a plaintiff and then the second defendant. And they ganged up on me. And they just sledged me for two days. I went home after the first day in tears. And I said to my wife, I don't know if I'm, you know, cut out for this. And she was like, it's all right. You'll be okay. It's fine. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you don't want to do it, that's okay. And anyway, I was so bad that at 29, I rang my mother. And I said, mum, I've just, these guys, they bullied me, blah, 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 blah. And she said, 
I didn't breed a loser. She just, <laughs> she just said, if you're in their position, you do the same thing. You get down there tomorrow and you go and give them hell. She said, mm-hmm. what do you have that they don't have? And I said, I don't know, ability to read and research cases that are post-1980. And she said, exactly. She said, just go down. She goes, you can use a computer. They probably can't. Mm-hmm. You can write. You can do these things that they're not ready for. Just blow them out of the water in terms of what the things that you can do. You mightn't have the court craft that they do, but you've got other skills that they won't. Mm. Anyway, so the next day I went down with 45 pages of submissions about why it was that they were all wrong on the evidence, blah, blah, blah. And yeah, we, we came out 50-50 between the two defendants, which is all I was hoping for. So yeah, yeah, so the gang up didn't work. That's crazy that the plaintiff and the second defendant mm. ganged, up, ganged up. Yeah, because I'm mate. Think, yeah. yeah. You'd, you'd, you'd think you had a friend in the court. Yeah. <laughs> God damn. Yeah, so they were all just going to try and level it onto my client. And of yeah. course, it was a whole new pressure. I, that pressure was different to normal because I had not only the client pressure, mm. but now I had solicitor pressure. So a solicitor sitting behind me, mm. who was a mate, who'd done the brief as a favour, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, can you try this? Then I had the pressure coming from both sides, from the two barristers, and a pressure from the judge. It was a whole new experience and yeah I was flaking out after day one but you know, the, the matron that's what we call my mother <laughs> she just said Don't, I'm not having it get back into the fight I didn't what? raise a loser yeah but pretty good attitude that is that yeah. is good I, I was it. just thinking yeah. I wish my mum would say <laughs> yeah. so how do you go about getting those first few briefs I've got no idea yeah, like <laughs> no no I just literally <laughs> would go and play pool at the RSL club mm. and drink schooners until someone would the clerk would run over and say you've got to go here now yeah. That was it. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, I came with this business plan, like mm. this beautiful business plan that I'd learned how to draft business plans from Clayton Yates. It had like beautiful fonts. It was in colour. Mm. It's just everything you want from a top tier lawyer. Mm. And the thing was a complete waste of paper within about three minutes. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> like it was just didn't go that way. The people who I thought would brief me didn't. People who... Uh, I had never heard of were suddenly through the door mm. you know and then because it's a performance based profession people see you in court and then that's how you get the next brief and the next brief and the next brief because yeah. it's, they're assessing you uh, as you progress so yeah the pressure's on I guess if, if you don't perform yeah. you might go hungry yeah yeah for sure and yeah. look you know it's hard because no one's ever played a perfect game of football have they like you yeah. know it's, it's, it's one of those things that some days you're just not on I mean I've opened cases where I've been so sick that all I've wanted to do is just call up in a bundle and you know die mm-hmm. I'm sure that performance is sub-optimal but you've just got to make sure that you've done all the groundwork so you're ready to go as best you can and that's what it is yeah. Mm. yeah. do you have any particular favourite cases or days in court? I've got a lot of favourite cases. I mean, Preston Painting is probably the best one, or it's a print with a hand colour. That was a good one where it was about the fraudulent, allegedly fraudulent uh, manipulation of the artwork. That was a good one. What else? I'm really fortunate in that I'd spend a lot of time in court and have mm. run a lot of cases, which is good. And I've had some really good victories and I've also had some pretty tough losses. You know, there's a kind of saying that the best barristers on Phillips Street lose more cases than they win, and that's because they get the harder cases. So unfortunately, mm. that sometimes is a consequence of the case as it comes in because we can't choose, right? We don't get to turn yeah. them away once, mm. they're, once they're here and they're available. Um, you know, it's, it's weird. I, I've had cases where I've settled cases for big, nasty defendants who have done very nasty things to people and have done it in a way that the plaintiff has ended up hugging me on the way out. 
mm. and saying thank you for listening and you know making it better and then I've had cases where you know you make a difference I mean they're the ones that that actually matter you mm. know sometimes the big corporate cases don't matter so much mm. just two big entities fighting each other over you know a footnote to a footnote and a balance sheet who cares yeah, yeah. not like the true human stories yeah yeah well yeah. as we were walking in we were talking about sports law and an interesting day that you had today that yeah. you might not be able to tell us about but something we're both interested in is how do you get into sports law and what do you actually do it's weird so i was a um, first grade rugby referee when well. firstly at uni and then um until uh, I, had jo- I came to the bar mm. and so through that i was on some judiciaries i was on a basketball judiciary i was on the rugby judiciary mm. and then just because of my understanding of the judicial process you get briefed in other things so i've acted um, now i think my sports number is uh, so i've got yachting uh, cricket rugby league rugby union soccer hockey skiing yeah. i think they're the only sports so far i probably i'm probably missing a few it's like the entire <laughs> yeah, no, so sports. I don't um, think there's any sports left. Yeah, um, I wouldn't mind an AFL one. That'll no. be good mm-hmm. because my practice has kind of got a bit of an employment component to it. I do a lot of employment stuff. It's got contract. It's got you know judicial judiciary. It's got disciplinary work. It's got injury work. I'm kind of a good fit for sport. Mm-hmm. You make no money out of sports law. It's mm-hmm. just done sort of as a sideline, mm-hmm. but it can be really interesting. Had some really good sports clients. Yeah, a good passion project to uh, go along with the big corporate entity cases. Yeah, if you like sport. I mean, it's weird because I, I, I have a really good sports practice, a really good art practice. Not many people have an art practice. Again, you don't make money out of art yeah. practices, which is why the art's no. hanging on the walls. But it looks good on the walls. You wall, usually right? get paid in art rather than actually in money. Um, and you still have to declare it to the commissioner, so uh-huh. it's a pain. But they're the, they're the two sort of passion, the two passion areas that I practice in. Bit of music. It's very cool. So are you a tribunal member on all those judiciaries? So I'm, I sit on Sansa, which is the super rugby judiciary, and I sit on the um, Shoot Shield judiciary, so the local oh, sit, yeah. Sydney Com. Um, and then I'm the chairman of the NRL Player Hardship Fund, which is yeah. a fund that's set up to assist players who are in their second to last or last year of their contract who get seriously injured and can't fulfil their contract. So um, they make an application and then the fund determines whether they can be paid out the rest oh. of their contract. How do you do it <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's but it's all those things, isn't it? Ask a busy person to do something and you'll get it done. If you, yeah. My diary is like this sacrosanct thing. And so yeah. if it's in the diary, it exists. If it doesn't, it does not exist at all. And so every fight that my wife and I have is because something wasn't in the diary. Mm. Weekends, yeah. holidays, whatever. But also because this job is, you know, it's vocational. It's not a... It's it, One of the things I think that people misunderstand about work-life balance is is that that doesn't mean that it's not hard it means that in a vocational profession like medicine like law and at the top end of that like if you're a specialist a medical specialist or you're an ER specialist your time is going to be taken unless you can book it out and it deserves to be taken because you're performing a um, service for people who need it you know, in a way. And so if you don't book it out for you, then it's going to be taken by someone else. And you are going to be a barrister. You're a barrister when you wake up, you're a barrister when you go to bed. And those times may vary on how much barrister work you need to do in that day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the that's the key to understanding it. And it's because you love doing it that you're actually going to allow that much time. Mm-hmm. But equally, you've got to make sure that you have time in your life for, you know, wife, friends, yeah. socialising, etc. 
And so that just needs to be taken out. You just go, okay, I'm not going to work on these days. It's just this regimental adherence to a diary. Yeah. Mm. What about if... My understanding is that sometimes matters come and things have to be heard on this day. Would someone else take your spot for that special hearing or what, what would happen there? Yeah, so the rules are that if you're in something and it gets pushed over... Mm it takes priority under the bar rules. So the yeah. bar rules have a, a system for how to work out who gets priority in what situation. And those emergency situations will be that, yeah, you, you have to keep going in the case you're in and then someone slots into the other thing that you were going to do and you can't. Yeah. Mm. Um, the convenience of counsel is in a way that isn't usually um, something that the court considers when it comes to assigning dates. So it tries, but yeah. it's, not a, it's not the be all and end all. Yeah. And so the cab rank rule actually works in practice? It's, it's not only does it work, but it's actually vital. So mm-hmm. if you don't believe in the cab rank rule as a barrister, then you're really undermining the way in which the profession was established because mm-hmm. it, it is really critically important that old mate can walk off the street and say, this is my case and I need someone to help me. And as long as he can afford the fee, that that can be done if you're available. Yeah, okay. um, now, that has meant that I act for people that... I don't particularly find very attractive mm. or mm-hmm. I don't really think I'm not even aligned with their views. Mm. It also means that I've acted for people who I don't believe at all mm-hmm. um, uh, and also meant that I've acted for people who surprised me Yeah, you know, mm. and ended up being better. But it's really important and they've, those pers- those, that case deserved my best attention to it yeah. in, within the confines of what I was ethically permitted to to do, mm. uh, which is a complicated and nuanced question case by case, I guess. Mm. So how do you manage taking on, I guess, clients that you don't necessarily like that much or align with them, their values or maybe what they've done? Well, I guess it's kind of ac- academic pursuit, right? Yeah. So law is a, has all the elements that make of great competition. It's got an adversarial element to it. It has an academic element to it. And then it's got an artistic element to it. That's the practice of a barrister. It's got mm. all of those things. And so none of those actually touch upon whether you're right or wrong. Mm. All of those things just touch upon how to win. So that's how you do it. Yeah. You know? mm. But yeah, it, it, it is, it doesn't, you know, when you sit around at a dinner party and everyone goes, oh, look at this, you know, person that O'Neill's acting for again. Yeah. yeah mm. You go, yeah. But then again, I think people, once it's explained to them, people understand it. Yeah. yeah. Someone's you know, got to do it. Everyone, everyone even, even the enemy combatant gets the surgery at, on the battlefield if, it, if he or she is dying from the bullet wound. So. Callan just really makes the bar sound so cool. Yeah. <laughs> Advocacy work. Um, if there were any listeners, or any of our younger students who are looking and think that the bar maybe will be for them, what advice would you have for them? It's the greatest um, thing that I've ever done in my life. Wow. So mm-hmm. it's worth, it's really worth it. It's worth ringing your mum. <laughs> it's worth ringing your mum and it's worth your mum telling you to get back in the fight. Mm. But all, equally though, depending on what area of law you work in or what you're going to work in, you've got to make sure that you have, I think, the maturity to be able to cope with um, the commercial pressure, the commercial reality of what's going on around you and understanding of the clients. So um, what I mean by that is if you go straight out of university, you often haven't learned, you know, either in a criminal law firm or a civil law firm, how clients work how the system works how to run a file how to um, do the practical things well how to write a letter and so that level of training university doesn't 
doesn't give you that. The university gives you the academic and the theoretical, and you'll find that you actually don't engage with that for some time. Yeah. It gives you this base, so you've got this framework in which to, to fit in all the information. But then the world gives you this experience that um, allows to shape that. Um, and so it also allows you to understand who you are as a person by the time you come to the bar, because the bar is going to do that as well. It's going to keep shaping you into the advocate you want to be or the advocate you will become. So I think don't rush in um, and then really make sure that you're experiencing all aspects of whatever it is that you're going to work in. So, you know, do the secondment, go to go overseas if that's what you want to do. Do those things because all of those things help you when you come back to practice of of being a barrister or the practice of advocacy. Mm -hmm. How many years was it between when you graduated and then you came to the bar? I think it was, so I graduated in 2003 Mm -hmm. and then I was at the bar 2012, so whatever that is, it's... Nine? Nine. Yeah, nine nine years. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. a whole bunch of lawyers sitting around trying to do math. Well, we're business students, we should be better. Yeah, you should be better. We're finance as well. Get your Excel spreadsheets out. (laughs) Yeah, my computer does my calculations for me. Yeah, there's a skill that we might have that other people wouldn't talk in the spreadsheet. For sure, for sure. Well, thanks for sitting down with us, Callan. No worries. That was a really interesting chat. Wrap it up there. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) I've been Georgia. I've been Nick. And we'll see you next time at the bar.